Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to hear singing in the sanctuary, is it not? Yeah. Through masks and all, we, we sing. Uh, I want to welcome those of you joining us online. Um, I, I know we have people uh, watching online from California and Indiana and Colorado and Florida, but the vast majority of people watching are just a few miles from where, where I am right now in Northville, Michigan, and uh, when you're ready online to make your way back, we are ready to, uh, to receive you, but wherever you're worshiping from, uh, welcome, really glad you're here today. We just uh, sang that song, Lord, I Need You, that's kind of where I'm at this morning. You saw the news uh, this weekend that infection rates are rising. Also rising is anxiety and fear and unrest, polarization. And we have to acknowledge it's not just the unrest out there that concerns us. If we're honest, there's unrest inside of us. And so we gather for worship and we say, God, we need you. We've chosen as a church to study a book of the Bible this fall that has as its dominant theme joy in all circumstances. It's commonly referred to as the book of Philippians, but we've learned that it's actually a letter written by a real person. His name was Paul, written to real people who lived in a real city called Philippi. This is Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's only four chapters long. It's not a long letter at all, but it is packed with content. And so far, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has told us to become the saints that we are already declared to be. You are saints. Paul's encouraged us to own our own spiritual growth. He's encouraged us to move in unity with humility, modeling after Jesus Christ. And today he's going to pull a lot of those themes together as he gets to this transitional section we're going to look at today. We're in Philippians chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week, Philippians 2 verse 12, and it reads this way, therefore, and if you're a student of the Bible, someone told you at some point, whenever you see in the Bible the word therefore, you should stop and ask what's it Therefore, yeah, what's it there for? So you look back and you see all, all that Paul's talked about so far is gonna transition and culminate right here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence when I was with you in Philippi, but now much more in my absence now that I'm in Rome in prison, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now before we unpack what that means, let's talk about what it does not mean. When Paul says to work out your salvation, he is not talking about working for your salvation. Working for your salvation is an entirely different worldview from Christianity. Working for your salvation, you know, means working to earn your salvation, to deserve it. And that's not the Christian worldview. Many world religions do have this teaching that you have to earn your way, but Christianity is not among them. Uh, for example, Islam teaches that you have to earn and work your way into heaven. Islam teaches there will be a day of judgment when people will stand before God, before Allah, and their deeds will be weighed in the balance 
and those who, whose good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, they will go to heaven. And those whose bad deeds outweigh the good deeds, they will go to hell. And only God knows which way the scales will tip. No one knows until that final day whether they will be found acceptable in God's sight. And so uh, that's why they take so seriously the five practices of Islamic faith, the five pillars of faith. They do these things out of devotion to God for sure, but they do them also because these are the ways in this religion that you can tip the scale in your favor. They, they pray five times a day. Muslims uh, have an annual fast. The, during the lunar month of Ramadan, they fast from sunrise to sunset. They give a certain amount of their income away. Every Muslim must make a pilgrimage, uh, a return trip to Mecca once in their lifetime. And these are really good practices, and you, you might say, well, Christians have a very similar list of spiritual practices, and we do. The difference is, though, in Islam, people do these things uh, because they're in a system in which they have to earn their way into God's favor. And these are things you, they can do to increase their odds, to, to sway God's decision in your direction. Another group you may have heard of is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they teach that when it comes to salvation, only 144,000 people will go to heaven. Everyone else will remain on earth. And those very special 144,000 people, they will uh, rule with Jesus uh, in heaven. And how do you get to be a part of those special 144,000? You have to work for it. And I mean work for it. You, you have to log so many hours going door to door. You have to sell so many magazines and books. You have to go to five meetings at the church every week. And that's just the beginning of it. You have to record all your activity. All your deeds have to be written down on certain forms that are sent into the church where they keep it in your master file. And those master files are sent to the headquarters in New York. Kind of makes you want to be nicer to those two ladies that come to your front porch, right, and give them a really good cup of hot chocolate or something. Now, Christian faith is entirely different. Philip Yancey writes about a British conference on comparative religions, and scholars from all around the world came, and they were discussing and debating what is the unique belief, if any, from Christianity that other religions don't have? What makes Christianity unique? And so they begin, you know, eliminating possibilities. Was it the idea of God becoming a human being? No. There are some religions that have variations on that theme. And even in Greek mythology, uh, Greek gods took on human form. Was it heaven? Was it life after death? Was it the eternal soul? Was it loving our neighbors? Was it taking care of the poor? Uh, was it about sin or hell or judgment? And the debate went on for some time until the famed Christian author C.S. Lewis walked into the room and he asked what they were discussing and he, they explained to him that they were looking for the unique contribution of Christianity and he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And the conferences talked about it a little more and eventually they all concurred. Almost, uh, unlike almost every religion on the planet, Christianity is not based on works, but it's based on grace. And the Bible goes out of its way to make this abundantly clear. Look at what Paul wrote in another one of his letters to the church at Ephesus. He writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Look, look how clear he wants to be. And this is not from yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I think one of the best and simplest definitions of grace is that which is freely given and totally undeserved. Freely given and totally undeserved. This is what Paul is talking about here. Uh, So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he is not talking about working for your salvation. God has done all the work for your salvation. Salvation is given as a gift by God. It is by grace. So what is Paul talking about here when he says, work out your salvation? He's talking about something that often gets overlooked. While salvation is not something earned, neither is it supposed to be something passive. While it is a gift, we are to cooperate with it. Salvation isn't a gift that's just payable upon death. We are supposed to work out our salvation right now in our lives. This is what we are supposed to do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are to live the saved life. So working out your salvation does not mean working for your salvation, but it might mean working on it, working with it, having your salvation work on you, I heard a pastor say to a group one time, he said, you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You are saved if Jesus is your Savior and Lord. You will be saved someday in the day of judgment after uh, you leave this life. But in between, you are being saved. And it's this being part that Paul is talking about here in Philippians. Uh, and why does Paul say to do this part with, with fear and trembling? That's just a cultural idiom to say, take this very seriously. It's the old sense of the word fear. Uh, look at your salvation with a, a holy, uh, reverential awe. Uh, take this seriously. This is not cheap. This is no game. Work out your salvation with holy fear and trembling. And look at what Paul says in another letter that he wrote to a different church. He says to this group, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so the people in this church were thinking, well, if if my sin means that I get more grace, shouldn't I sin more? Because grace is good. I'd have more grace. Or really, if I'm already forgiven, does it really matter about my sin? And Paul says in his own way, are you crazy? Uh, Of course it matters. That's like saying, now that I'm married, do I have to remain faithful to my spouse? And now that I'm officially hitched, does it matter how I treat my spouse? And Paul says, of course it does. You, You are married, behave like you are married. You are baptized, behave like you are baptized. You are saved, live the saved life. Let your salvation work out through you every aspect of your life and do it with holy fear and trembling. Now Paul gives us more good news 
God will help you with this. God will help you. Again, Paul writes in the section we're looking at today, again, we saw continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You are not alone in this work. God's power is with you and for you and inside of you. And God has called you to this life. God has called you to this great work uh, for which you do not have the ability. And if we're honest, you, you don't really have the desire. But God will work in you to give you the ability and the desire. God will work in you to actually change what you want. God will redirect your appetites. God does this work inside of us. Now, in some ways, it's a natural process for people who are connected to God, but it is not an automatic process. You and I can do things to open ourselves up to God's transforming work, and we can do things to close ourselves off from God's transforming work. We can reflect on the scriptures, we can be around other people who are seeking God or we can isolate ourselves. We can not open uh, the scriptures to our minds. Uh, this is a process that we get to participate in. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier and he once wrote about choices. He's, with, with every choice that we make, this is the words of C.S. Lewis, with every choice, you are turning the central part of you the part that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. C.S. Lewis has observed that it's, it's little choices that we make that actually change who we are. Most of us, it's not one big choice, one big deal. It's a series of small choices that change fundamentally that central part of who we are. And we're becoming, he says, either a hellish creature or a heavenly one by these little choices. What would that, what would that heavenly creature look like? I think that's what Paul's talking about in the next section for today. Do everything without grumbling or complaining so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Right, the goal of a worked out salvation is a simple one that in a crooked and depraved and dark and decadent world that we would shine, that we would be light in darkness. And first and foremost, this means to share the only message that can alter someone's eternal destiny. Right? We share the good news. And this, this command is so clear that when Jesus said it, it became known as the great commandment. But in addition to the great commandment, there's this the Great Commission, there's, there's this cultural commission, the Great Commission and the Cultural Commission um, to participate in God's mission to set this world right, to work with Jesus for the renewal of all things. Uh, Soon said earlier in the service that Christians have always done this. Christians are rushing in when other people are running out. And I think of, of some of our partners uh, of our church, I think of our mission partners in Thailand who work to rescue girls from sex trafficking. And these Christian workers, uh, you know, that demonstrate unconditional acceptance and love for these women. 
At the same time, they work to dismantle the businesses and the systems that keep them enslaved. I think of our workers in India who work to free the delete, this part of India that's considered the untouchables, uh, to consider the, 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 the marginalized, the, 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 uh, uh, the down and outs, the despised, sharing with them the good news that they are also made in the image of God, not just the higher castes, but they too are made in the image of a God who loves them. I think of our partners in Detroit who work with incredible energy to create jobs and provide affordable housing and safe neighborhoods all in the name of Jesus. And every one of these partners I've talked about, all of them have had their own lives threatened. All of them serve in spite of the sacrifices that their call demands of them. And this is how the world gets changed. When men and women of God work out their salvation in ways that they shine like stars and bring light in places of darkness. And this is what Christians have always done. This is why Christians have always been a little bit revolutionary. In the ancient world, the uh, influence of Christianity uh, brought a stop to uh, infanticide, ended slavery, liberated women, created hospitals, orphanages, and schools. That was in the ancient world. In the Middle Ages and the Middle uh, Era, uh, Christianity kept classical culture alive by copying manuscripts, by building libraries, by inventing colleges and universities. In the modern era, Christianity led the way in the development of science, of political and economic freedom, and provided what is arguably the greatest source of inspiration for music and art and literature. And so what will the followers of Jesus do in our generation? How will we work out our salvation and what areas of our world are we gonna shine a light on right now? Because you don't work out your salvation so you do, can do nothing and then die. You work out your salvation so you can fight the good fight in whatever ways God leads. And do you notice what Paul adds to this? He, he says, do this without complaining. And uh, th this is a very rare word that Paul uses here, the word complaining. It, it's the word used in the Old Testament of the complaining the people did against Moses in the wilderness wanderings. It's the complaining that kept an entire generation out of the promised land. And Paul says, don't do that. When you're working out your salvation and we're all on a mission of God to make this world right, don't get sidetracked with this little complaining and petty bickering. That only sidetracks the mission, which is why Paul adds this little tag at the end. I don't know if you caught this. He says uh, here toward the, the end of this section, then I, Paul, will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Uh, he says, do this so that when I stand before God someday and I give an account for how I pastored you, how I led you, how I invested in you, that it will not be for nothing. For Paul, it was all about the mission. If you're engaged in the mission, in spiritual warfare, where heaven and hell are on the line, then, 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 then why would we bicker about all the little things that the churches bicker and fight about? For Paul, the day is too dark. The time is too short. The need is too great to do anything but give ourselves fully to this mission. Paul says this mission is more important even than his own life. This is what he uh, writes as we wrap up this section. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me.
as we already know, Paul is writing this from prison. He does not know if he's going to live or die. And so he says to his friends at Philippi, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I know that you're going to be okay. I know you're going to work out your salvation. You're going to shine light in dark areas. You're going to stay unified and focused on the mission. And if I end up getting killed for leading you, then so be it, because what a run this has been. And remember, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I assume nobody here you know, wants to be poured out like a drink offering. Uh, people don't put that on their resume in that little objective section. You know, I want to be poured out. But doesn't a life sacrificed for something good and great stir something inside of you? Something deep. Most of you will be familiar with the name John Wesley. John Wesley was a reformer in Anglicanism and his reform efforts actually led to the, the creation of the Methodist movement. And I came across something from his life that he called his covenant prayer to God. And if I understand this correctly, this was not intended to be published. This wasn't for a book. This was just his own personal covenant with God, and it was discovered after his death in his belongings. Just a private pact with God. And I I find these words um, very inspiring. This is what he wrote. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted by you or brought low by you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Right, the, the, the power of that kind of life is immeasurable. It's the kind of life that John Wesley lived. It's the life that Paul lived. And it's the life that you and I can live too. Will you pray with me? Well, God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for John Wesley and for countless men and women who have pursued your mission with full resolve through personal sacrifice and danger and even death. We thank you for generations of lives affected because they put your mission above themselves. And God, I want to pray for those who've heard a prompting of God today. There are some today who are ready to accept the offer of salvation. We've been reminded today that salvation is not something earned or deserved. It is something given in grace by a gracious God. And maybe there are those listening today who would want to pray in this moment in the quietness of their heart, God, I receive and accept your salvation as a gift. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your offer to lead and direct me. I receive Jesus as my forgiver and leader. I want to pray also for those who've heard a prompting from God 
to get serious about working out their salvation with fear and trembling. And maybe there are some listening right now who want to pray, God, I have not taken seriously enough the task of living a saved life. Give me the power to work out my salvation through every relationship, every attitude, every action, and to follow your voice as you lead me in your mission to set this world right. Father, help us all to shine in a dark world. I pray for the next John Wesley, the the next young man or young woman who will be seized by a higher call. Stir us to be kingdom collaborators and kingdom representatives. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And the covenant which we have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen and amen. If you did pray a turning point kind of prayer today, would you let somebody know about that? If you made a decision about Jesus, don't keep that to yourself. If you're watching online, there's a little place you can uh, click to raise your hand to indicate your decision. It's also a place you can ask for more information if you'd like it. Uh, God will honor the decision you've made.